Good morning, new party. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to John M. Chu's gloriously sunny adaptation of the Lin Manuel Miranda musical that isn't Hamilton in the Heights. I'm not on this one. You'll be delighted to hear, as I was unavailable for the recording session. But as you will soon find, Helen O'Hara, Amon Warman, and Ben Travis didn't care a jot for my absence and banged on about the film for an hour or so. And quite rightly so. It is a cracker. So, why am I here? Well, I'm here to set up the interview with John M. Chu, which a certain someone who shall remain nameless forgot to do during the spoiler special recording session, even though she, sorry, this person who shall remain nameless had done the interview. I don't know. Honestly, I turn my back for five minutes and chaos reigns around this place. Can't get the staff. Anyway, here is Helen having a good old spoilerific natter with John M. Chu about the film, after which you will be plunged straight into the spoiler chat with Helen, Ben, and Amon. Enjoy the spoiler chat! John M. Chu, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have now seen the film three times. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I saw it twice on screener, and then I saw it finally last night with an audience in a cinema. And what did you it think was, in the audience? Oh my God, it was so much better. I mean, it was good it's before, different. don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah. It hits but, different, but as Lynn it says. It really does. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I... Okay, this is a spoiler podcast, so we're going to be talking about things that okay. happen in the plot. But okay. I'm just going to say, Abuela Claudia's death, like, mm. I was sobbing last night mm. in a way mm. that I had... You know, it, it hit me before, but it didn't hit me to that extent. Yeah. I think there's a lot of... We play with silence. We play with a lot mm. of sounds in this movie, but silence, and we go... We take the bottom out. There's not even atmosphere in that silence. And then you hear those like rustling trees, or the, the leaves come back. And that's a visceral experience. And if you don't have a quiet environment, if you're cooking or you have kids running around the other way, which is usually happening in my house, uh, you don't get that focus. You don't get that moment. And so I, I, I feel what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Uh, but that was actually one of my questions. So already we'll take one mm. off. Fantastic. Um, but but I mean, let's let's start at the beginning. What were your sort of priorities going into this? You know, what was it that you mm -hmm. sort of pitched to Lynn? I, I guess to mm -hmm. Lynn. It was there an element yeah, of selling yourself Lynn. to him. Yeah, I mean, there was. Uh, I remember seeing it for the first time on Broadway and being not knowing who Lynn Manuel Miranda was at that time, and being extremely moved by his words, by his melodies, and feeling very personally connected, even though I'm not from Washington Heights, I'm not Latino. I'm from California, the other side, from a Chinese restaurant uh, owners. And, uh, and yet he said things that even I, as a creative person, have never been able to express with this family, with how to be, when you're raised by not just your parents, but by your aunts and uncles, yeah. when you have the weight of their stories on your shoulders and you don't know what to do with it. So you rebel against it. And then you don't know what to do with it when it's in your lap. And my abuela Claudia was my boo-boo who to to showed me how to fold wontons and would oh, wow. do the books for the, for, for the restaurant and at, at the end of every night and she would use an abacus. So the sounds and the tastes and the smells, they were all, I recognized those in this show. And I think that that, I never thought I would direct the show, but I, uh, but I, but I it had an imprint on me. And so when I was talking to Lynn a decade later about it, I knew that that was the center of all of this. And I knew that cinema had tools to get there more than what a theater show could be, because you could be two inches from their face. You could be three inches from that food. 
you could see how you lie to your parents, even though it seems like you're telling them the truth. And I knew that this show was about intimacy, even though you have giant moments and their dreams are bigger than, than the screen can contain. But that all has to come through the intimacy of being right with somebody when they dream, about being right there when they're being, you know, uh, yearning to break free from wherever the spot they're in. If you're not that close to them, if you don't feel that as truth, then this is a performance. And yeah. what's the point if this is a performance? Um, everyone has different ideas of what a musical is. But for me, is growing up with musical, it was so personal. Music so personal. And that's what my angle was with him. And it feels like the, um, you know, th that, that importance comes out because you've, like, the, the question of, you know, getting a lease on a shop seems yeah. to be as important in this as, you know, writing the Constitution in Hamilton. <laughs> like, it matters yeah. as much to the people involved, 100%. Yeah. yeah, we always said there's no small stories that we could have picked anybody on this block to zoom in on in that opening shot when we pull out. Usually a musical number, you pull out to see the whole block and that's how it ends. Instead, we start out wide and we push in and we pick anyone. We're going to pick the owner of the bodega shop, this person that you may pass by every day and not pay one second attention to. And yeah. his dreams and his hopes and his what he wants in this world are as important as, as anything you've ever seen on screen before. And his dreams are more magnificent and, 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 and will delight you as much as a, a Walt Disney animated uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon ever did. To me, it's like, that's what we're showing. That person next to you has, has a whole life. Uh, and maybe if you pay attention to him, um, since they're your neighbor, uh, that you'll, you'll, you'll see another human being too. And maybe your thoughts will change about the world. Yeah. So tell me about this kind of the the, the way you bring that out because you have this sort of I don't know if it's magical realism or just magic, but you know, there, <laughs> throughout the film, there's the sort of the graffiti coming to life uh, mm -hmm. immediately. There's the I think my favorite bit might be the the kind of trash talking with the animation. I thought that <laughs> yeah. was absolutely brilliant. Um, <laughs> and you. and then the, the, the you know dancing up the side of a building or bolts of fabrics spilling over the yeah. skyline. I mean, it's gorgeous stuff. Thank you. Uh I think that's, if there's another part that uh, Lynn and I connected on was, we know what it feels like to dream. We know what it feels like to sit in your bedroom and look out the window and think things of being a director or being a storyteller that didn't seem possible. Um, yeah. Playing with your toys in your closet and, and imagining a giant adventure, knowing you may never get there, but but just still dreaming about it. And so for for me, it was how do you create how do you take the idea of what a musical is, which is when words aren't enough, song comes out. What do you, how do you extend that power to movement? Okay, now, now when they, not you don't have to have any words, you can actually just move to that. And that can express something that words can't. Oh, and let's extend that power further. Okay, how about the environment they're in? We're in Washington Heights. There's a spiritual nature to this place. So if that door wants to slam when they get angry by itself, then let the door slam. If the whole building wants to tilt on its own axis to express what it feels like to be in love and give them a ballroom dance floor bigger uh, than a real ballroom dance floor, because that's how it feels um, to have that kind of elegance with these two people, um, not knowing about their future, but knowing about what they're doing right now. Mm. Uh, we wanted to allow for that to happen. And so we all talked about that. Okay, if you're talking about your dreams of the future, how do they dream about it? Oh, it's a graffiti Pete. He's, he's imagining what it's like uh, with his uh, spray can. And so we get to do these images and it's playful and it's fun. And okay, well, how about Vanessa? When Vanessa's there and she feels trapped, 
How do you express that? She's not going to cry. She's not a crier. So what is she going to do? We're going to express that by showing her run out onto the street, empty streets, yelling as loud as she can. And instead of crying, we're going to have giant swaths of tapestry fall over the buildings as if they were her tears. And you're going to feel the weight of that in colors and tapestry. And then we're going to pull back as far as she's running. And we're going to realize we're just in her eyes and she hasn't gone anywhere. That's what it feels like to feel trapped to feel like you want to yell at the top of a building and, and, and you don't know what to do about it. Um, so it was about allowing us to go there when we earned it. We couldn't do yeah. that in the beginning of the movie. We had to earn it along the way. And in fact, you, you start in like really, really close up. I mean, I feel like that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt mm-hmm. like that was the only uh, time that Uznavi was really talking direct to camera as opposed to the, the sort of the storytelling that he does for most of the, of the story. Yeah, there's only a couple times that he sort of uh, breaks that fourth wall for us. And by the way, not a lot of actors can do that and and still feel inviting. Sometimes, like a lot of times, I can feel very uh, there's again kind of very few actors right? who can confronting. Yeah, it's weird. But instead, he's like he's like you're like one of his homies, and he's going to show you his 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 spot. Let me show you my spot, bro. Come on in. And like uh, he had a charm about that and an ease about uh, that. Um, but. But yeah, that, I think that the intimacy of those shots and those close-ups were really important. When we're pushing in on him in his bodega, uh, that's, that's actually a culmination of a lot of people, of our whole cast and crew being in sync. We're, we're, we're pushing in very slowly so that that screw is tightening. And uh, we have this window in front of him that's trapping him. And he's, he's just sitting there. He's not even dancing. He's just saying it with his eyes about where he's at in his life and and then the reflection of all the community in the in the windows is is not being sad for him it's it's challenging him it's challenging him to break that window it's daring him to dream bigger and that's what it feels like to to have that claustrophobic feel of where you are in your life which yeah. all of the characters are at that moment so yeah um those close-ups were very important for us and and how we gave us the doorway to do the big, the, you know, the bigger visual things, I, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you've done dance movies before. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I'm genuinely a huge fan of Step Up to the Streets, my favorite nice. franchise. But, um, <laughs> Gosh. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, how different was it to sort of, you know, because they weren't quite musicals, they were dance movies. And it's like yeah. a different thing, it feels like. So h- how yeah. dif- difficult was it to, to go up to full, we're closing down the street, you're all going to yeah. dance, let's go. <laughs> I mean, we we definitely closed down streets, even in Step Up to the Streets with the rain and all that true, stuff, true, four, yeah. four blocks. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, I, I call them danceicals. You know, dance movies before that had like five performances and we definitely made a conscious choice of how many how many numbers are in a musical? Oh, 12, 13 movie musicals? Okay, we had to do that many because that's why people are coming to this thing. Oh, and you're hiring mostly dancers, n- not necessarily actors, so... Uh, then let's play to our strengths. Um, However, what I didn't realize is that lyrics is a whole nother thing. Words are a whole nother thing, especially when you're working with one of the greatest of all time. So that was an adjustment of like, oh no, I want to hear the door slam when he comes in because I want this to feel like it's happening in the space. And he's like, well, you can't hear that word. Well, yeah, but you kind of know it. Like, But that word is really important. You're like, Oh yeah, that is really important. If you don't get that information, <laughs> you don't get that anywhere. So then we have to like debate how loud is that door slam or is, should there be a door slam at all? A lot of people make choices in musicals where, where they don't have any sound effects when those music starts. And that's mm-hmm. their prerogative. This is, everybody gets to interpret it their own way. But for me, I, I needed to ground everything. Not that it happened in reality, but that you were, that you as an audience knew that it was coming from them. 
not from a recording somewhere else. Um, so there was a lot of debates like that that we had to negotiate and figure out. And and you couldn't ask for a better creative partner than him and Alex Lacamoire and Bill, yeah. uh, who, 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 who are such close friends uh, who can call each other out on their bullshit, but are so talented. And that's similar with me and my creative team. I brought Alice Brooks, who, who, who shot all my sh- shorts when I was uh, in film school. Uh, and we had done so many dance together. Christopher Scott, our, our, uh, our choreographer, uh, we've been working together for 10 years. And so amazing. it was, a, it was two, two families coming together that love to make things. Um, and that was, that, was, that was a beautiful combination. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, so, so tell me about some of the changes because, you know, at a very small level, I noticed a couple of maybe updates in the language. So there's a mention mm-hmm. of John Wick, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then on, on the big levels, my sister who saw the musical five times on stage, oh, wow. I think, uh, was, was a little bit upset because her favorite song was from Nina's mum. And I Nina's mum isn't ones. in it. Yeah. So, so tell me about some of the changes you had to make. Well, first of all, almost all the songs are in it in some form. It may mm. not be in its full uh, five minutes, six minute. I mean, every song is very long uh, version, but they're in the score. They're in moments of, of things. So, so we have all those songs. But that said, this is a movie. We had to make choices and those were hard. And we had to clear the way. I think that a movie has to be a bit more focused, a bit more specific in perspective. Uh, it's why we gave the framework of him telling a story to these children. Um, it gave us a little bit of permission on the world's world building side, but also it really landed on him that he was not just a piece of a grander tapestry of characters. He was our actual storyteller. And this was actually the story of him passing on his story to the next generation and tagging them as it. And then, I mean, she's the only other one that looks at the camera at the end, his daughter, mm, her da- his yeah. daughter. And she looks right at us, the audience, and she's like, I got this. We got this. They got this. Thank God that they're going to see things that we adults can't see in the future because we saw things that our parents couldn't see. So yeah. um, that, that became the framework of the whole movie. And um, so we needed that. Once you focus on that and you put in the wedge points that you need to support that, uh, which means Vanessa has to be bigger parts, which means she needs to have dreams that you actually know what she's dreaming of. In the show, there's no, defi- she just wants to move downtown. She does not have a specific dream. We needed to fill her out. We need to understand why we're rooting for him to be with her and why we're rooting for her to be with him. So we had to add scenes to make sure that he saw her in different ways than everybody else and she saw him. Yeah. Um, and I love those scenes. I love those little intimate scenes with them. Um, it all takes room. And then you throw Nina and Benny in. And Nina and Benny have a lot of room to do. Mm. And, uh, and you got to tell that story. And then when you realize, all right, mom and dad, you have to have a conversation with mom and you have to have a conversation with dad. This is too much. This movie, it's, <laughs> you can't handle it. And we had Jimmy Smith. And you're like, this guy can handle it all. By the way, taking the mom out of that, how much pressure does that put on her now? As, mm. as, as the person who took care of her dad, uh, who did the books at their at at the car service too? To, and and he can be like, he can be scatterbrained sometimes in there. And she kept things organized. We had a scene actually with her like reorganizing the desk again because she hadn't been there. And um, it just shows like she's such a part of his life. And and him letting her go to college, encouraging her was also losing something for himself. He was going to yeah. be lonely. That's why that hug at the end or at that sequence when he she's going off to college and how exuberant they are when she gets into college and how 
it's sad he is when yeah. he's shaking. And that's yeah. really him doing that. Seeing this big man do that is is uh, is is moving. And so it helped a lot of things that we we needed to. I mean, there's also the point where Peter uh Paciency Fei used to be in, in the show is the is is at the intermission. Yeah. Um and 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 she's at the end in the middle of that, she doesn't say in our movie, she says, Should I stay or should I go? Instead, she says, What will I do with this winning ticket? When you find out that she won the lottery halfway through the movie or show. Yeah. So then that to me, that disrupted a lot of the conflict. There was like easy answers. You could you could solve eight of those conflicts with with a check like that and you and then the audience i don't know for me it it didn't help our movie yeah and so it had to be about something different yeah um so we just made choices like that and similarly like having a previous kind of relationship between benny and nina that gives them a bit more grinding i guess and and yeah. and also a bit a bit of differentiation between the two couples because you've got one couple that are crushing on each other or certainly he is yes and and the other one is a slightly different situation it's not it has quite some history yeah. Totally. And th- and there was more to their story too that we had in the movie, but then you would have had a three hour movie and we just had <laughs> to make choices at that point. Like I thought it could fit. I really thought like Benny was developing an app for the a multilingual app for, uh, for the store. Uh, he was more of an entrepreneur. Um, she was like, we have a scene where she's speaking Spanish in the, uh, and challenging him to speak Spanish in the, uh, in the car service area. So, but again, it was like the focus became so much about her and her father and her and her own journey that that those things sort of became less important. Because then you needed to, once you opened the can of, of, of Benny versus dad, then you couldn't just have a scene with them working together and understand them. Then, then you mm-hmm. need a scene where what happened to that app? Yeah. Who's investing in that app and everything? And then we have a scene with that. So it was just eight, eight different things connected to one, one extra scene. And so that was hard. Yeah, that's fair enough. None of it was easy to cut. Not no, I can I, yeah, it's a uh, it, I can I can imagine because they are, the pieces are all connected, you know, to to yeah. quote the wire, you know. Um and all the pieces <laughs> matter. But um what as well about um I mean you mentioned Spanish there. You know, was that ever at a studio level a worry because un- of course, you know, in this country for example, not everyone will sp- will know all of these words. Yeah. And there's going to be countries around the world where not everybody speaks Spanish. Yeah. Now, I know that the musical was a hit, so I'm guessing that gives you some leeway. But, you know, is this, this the kind of thing that Hollywood still worries about? Or did you find that, you know, that that's a thing of the past? Um, Hollywood definitely still worries about it. For this in particular, not it didn't come up that much other right. than how much, how many subtitles are you going to have in this movie? So the, the, the issue of the benefit was I had just done Crazy Rich Asians and we already did this debate. And in Crazy Rich Asians, we showed it once to an audience and somebody raised their hand and said, I love the movie. I'm just confused why everybody speaks English in Singapore. And you're like, oh, because that's actually what it happens. <laughs> you're like, because that's real? And then they're like, it doesn't make, I just, I'm confused. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry that you're confused about that, but that's what they do there. They speak yeah. English. So let me explain colonialism to you here. I have some yeah. research. <laughs> so then it, be, it actually became a debate. Do we need to explain to the audience that people speak English? And I'm like, what are you we talking about? No. And by the way, we're not going to have subtitles for everything. People understand what they're saying to each other, even if they don't know the words that they're saying to, and let's move on. And we'll only do it where it's such critical plot points that we have. And that's what we were able to do in, in, in Creative Rich Asians. It worked. And, uh, and so we had the same philosophy going into here. So I sort of had fought some of those battles earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that de- definitely, it's got to help. I mean, it's got to also stop being a problem at some point and people have got to s- start trusting Seriously. that, you know, we can all listen <laughs> to each other. People can read. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. 
But you also, I mean, like the specificity of the the culture here is just gorgeous. I mean, the food, the food shots looked incredible. They looked amazing. Okay, I immediately wanted to jump in. So um, <laughs> people shouldn't go see this on an empty stomach, should they? No, not at all. In fact, I, ho- I hope you leave hungry. I hope you go look up recipes. I hope you ask your uh, Latinx friends what food that their parents made. I hope you go over to their house and they make it for you. I hope I hope it spurns curiosity in your brain and and you go learn how to, you have a salsa night where you do all that stuff. Like to me, that's, it's sharing, sharing, sharing. I, I, I remember, because I grew up in a Chinese restaurant. So food uh, was a way that they said they loved you, you know, they loved me. And, uh, it was such a part of our life. So I knew the details of how important that was. And so, but I didn't know this, these particular types of food. So we had to have, we, this was a, a, a collaborative effort between all of us. They would, we'd have giant spreads of food and the cast and Kiara would look at them and be like, yes, that one. Oh, you got to have that one. <laughs> Definitely not that one. I don't know what the hell that is. Where did you get that thing from? And oh, that's too clean. Make it messier. That's not the right plate that our grandparents would have. It on. You know, all the details. <laughs> and we would just spend the time because it was a priority. Okay. So what, what's, uh, are there any foods you discovered through doing this? Have you got any favorite recipes coming out of it? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I honestly, cafe con leche is just really good. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't drink that before and it's really good. And, uh, and piragua, of course I had like a, a, a very small sense of, but now it gives me a lot of joy, but there's things like, um, a detail that I, even to this day, I'm amazed that, um, we had a process like this, but, but in the opening sequence, there's a Dominican family cooking breakfast and, um, are we had a we have a a, a chef that is a uh, that that makes the that makes the food for our scenes and we, and we said specifically this is going to be a Dominican family make a Dominican breakfast and they made this stuff um, and one of our crew members I believe was like you better get that on camera because that's never been on a movie before my family would flip if they saw that and we're like okay wow. and we're like running out of time I was like okay get the camera on that thing we get a close up of it coming off of the the pan and into the thing and then we. When we're editing it, it's not in the movie. And I'm like, we got to put that close up of the thing because that crew member said that his family's going to flip if we see it. So then we maneuver it, take an hour to make sure that it fits in there, not thinking much of it after that. And then now that we're showing it to people, you know what they bring up in these press meetings and everything? Is that breakfast is crazy <laughs> that you, that um, a suggestion by somebody that you, if you create a, uh, a forum in which people can speak up, that it, it helps you. Who would have guessed? Yeah, you listen and it helps. And so that means a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. And and it is and it is such a, a factor in the in the musical and it's something that, that Lynn talks about a lot. It's it's you know, we use Latinx as a as a kind of overarching yes. word, but like there's a million cultures in that and there's a so huge many. amount of variation. And you know, so and, and the musical doesn't flatten that. It does actually no. show you that. We had a there's a certain point where in, in Carnival de Barrio, uh, they all pull out their flags. And I remember several uh, cast members saying, you know, if you're going to pull out one of those flags, you have to represent every single flag up there. I promise you, if you don't, someone will yell at you. I was like, oh my gosh, how many are there? Okay. And then I go to my prop guy, do we have flags of everybody? Like, we don't have flags of everybody. I'm like, all right, we're going to have to leave room because we're going to add digital flags for everybody. We have to. And then in our first trailer... We have that shot and we've digitally put in others that, that we didn't have the flags over on that day. And uh, people freeze-framed fro- freeze those, those shots and circled their flags and posted it. And it was a whole thing, posting it on, on, on social media. And I'm like, thank God. 
thank God we did yeah. that. And it's just about listening at a certain point. And directors, by the way, that's not our, that's not our strength, listening. Um, but uh, maybe it should be. Like you said, it just helps people connect to your movie. It's something they've never seen yeah. before. It's, it's an easy way of, you know, bringing something new and fresh to the screen. It just seems, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it wasn't that yeah. easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but you know, <laughs> it's easier than not I think, listening. I think the director is the only one who can make a, make priorities and set the priorities. And, um, and so we set the priorities in the way that, that we, we felt that was important for this. And, and, yeah. and, and so we had to fight. Yeah, we had to spend more money sometimes. And, and in order to spend more money, you have to talk to the studio who doesn't understand that stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have to have conversations just like this to explain. You know, the end credits, they're like, we can't put um, the street dance names of your dancers in the movie for the credits. I'm like, they don't go by their legal name. They don't, that's, you're erasing their names. That's not, they don't go by their light driver's license name. How they get a job is because it says whatever their name is. It says flex, it says whatever. Put it in parentheses, put in whatever you need, but they need to have their name there. And they're like, that's not precedent. And you're like, I don't care about precedent. This is the time we're living. You guys made a press release about diversity, about understanding. And I'm telling you out loud right now that this is important. And you are literally saying you don't care because of a legal, you don't, you don't, because you've never done it before, which by the way, is not true. Uh, I think you put Dwayne The Rock Johnson on other movies. I think never you heard put, of him, mate, no. I think you put some person named Lady Gaga in your movie. So don't give me that. And those are, those are hard, private, not private anymore, conversations, debates that you're left with your jaw on the floor of. And, yeah. and luckily they saw the light after many, many emails and yelling and all that stuff. And we got it. So. That's amazing. Um, I, 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 I'm probably running a little bit short of time, but there are a couple of little, kind of, not, not Easter eggs, but little details I wanted to ask you about. First of all, it felt like Nina was was beginning to mirror her younger self as the film goes on. She's even wearing a sort of rainbow striped top at the mm -hmm. end. Um, yeah. That's just not just me imagining it, right? That that was on purpose. No, that's all. Um, yeah, that's all we want to do. Mm -hmm. You even see the, we even put the little girl in the reflection of the, um, I don't know if you saw it on the big screen version, but you can see it better in the big screen where when she gets, when she leaves on the, on the, on the subway car, uh, there's a reflection of the little girl that's standing oh, there as well. That one I missed. Mm -hmm. I saw her several times later in the film, but that one I missed. Yeah. That's awesome. The hold music for Stanford. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's King George's song, isn't it? Of course. Of course. <laughs> That, that's how you know who's a fan in the audience when they laugh because only like their pockets of people and they're like, all right, they're here. They're here. It's the best <laughs> moment. There's a lot of different things uh, of, of, of the, of the uh, linematic universe in this movie. <laughs> the Limbo Miranda musical universe. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> and I wanted to ask as well about the, um, uh, during Abuela Claudia's sort of uh, Big, big number, I guess. That mm -hmm. seems like the wrong phrase. Um, but in the tunnel, yeah. uh, she's standing beside graffiti with Archangel written on it. Was that, um, mm. I, I don't suppose that was just something that happened to be there and you're like, ooh, that's, or was it, uh, was it designed? Well, those, uh, uh, it was there and we knew the, what it said right there and we left it. Um, but those, that's a real tunnel. Uh, and, and we had to clear every single piece on, in that tunnel. I think wow. there was 32 artists. Um, in order to use the real tunnel. Um, so none of it was fake. I think there was one section that we couldn't shoot in because that one artist didn't want us shoot it. So we just skipped that part of the tunnel. <laughs> but everyone else, uh, luckily, was commissioned years ago by the, by the, by the city. So they, they actually had a record of who did what. Oh, uh, but it, 
it took a whole team of people tracking these people down and uh, and explaining what we were trying to do with it. And we gave them the opportunity to come back and repaint their section to brush it up if they wanted or not. Uh, some people took that opportunity, some people didn't. And uh, uh, and so Arc Angel is one of the, I think one of the artists that that is right there that happened oh, to have his his name there previously. So we just kept it. It kind of fits. You know, and then yeah. she goes up and the stairs. And there's like these tropical delight. leaves right there that just happened to fit. We definitely chose that area. Like we had to choose where she would end up, and and that seemed like to be the right mm. place. Absolutely did. Um, and the little green crab. Tell me yeah. about him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> little green crab uh, was something. I think we were just joking around. Like Sunny's not doing anything in this scene. <laughs> uh, graffiti piece kind of take, should should he be the graffiti? And we're like, no, 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 no. What's what's going on? And then. And then it was like, oh, he would he would try, but he would be fail, <laughs> fail miserably. We're like, oh, let's put the little green crab. And so we made this. By the way, we did like 18 versions of this green crab painted on it. Because some, some of them, people were like, it looked like a, a, literally a four-year-old drew that. You can't, you would do better than that. <laughs> and they were like, well, you can't do too good because then the joke doesn't play. And so we were like, so many versions. And uh, and then we were like, oh, in the beginning, let's put that green crab in the movie. So the, So you see this neon green crab that... Gives us little hints that the beach isn't what you think it is. And did you get to do any shooting on a tropical beach or, or was that green screen? Uh, it was definitely on a beach, but I wouldn't say it was a tropical beach uh, in uh, Long Island <laughs> um, that, uh, that had a dock. Um, and we just, uh, we just enhanced it, I would say. But it was a beach. It was a beach, at least. Yes. Some kind of beach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been absolutely great to have you and I can't wait for everyone to see In the Heights. Thank you, Helen. Appreciate it. Okay, so we're going to be spoiling In the Heights. Let's just start, like, cards on the table. How did you feel about this movie? Super great. I think, well, we had to do our mid-year review kind of roundups for uh, Empire this week. This is my number two film of the year so far. Ah, I really love it. And, like... I think I think I was always going to love it because I love the musical and I love Lin-Manuel Miranda and I've been a big fan of this this musical and this music for a long time but I it doesn't necessarily kind of have to be a great film and I think it is a really really good adaptation that streamlines the right things that gets all of the essence of everything onto the screen and I've I've seen it multiple times in the cinema and I, as we record this, I'm planning to see it again this weekend. Like, I can't get enough of it. It's exactly what my soul needs this year. So, um, I, yeah, probably uh, was always going to be biased towards this film, but I do really, really love it. It's great. I'm more in the like column than the love column. Uh, mm. I, I really enjoyed this film. I think it's still, at this point, probably the feel-good film of the year for me. Just the opening number just immediately puts you in that world in a really fun, exciting way. And unsurprisingly, <laughs> uh, the soundtrack has been on repeat in the Warman household uh, <laughs> for the last several weeks. Um, there's some of the shine of, of, of the movie has gone off a little bit for issues that I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh, but on the whole, this is still a really fun film uh, that I really enjoyed watching. Wait, you're listening to a soundtrack on repeat? I that know. doesn't sound right. You know, I, I like to surprise you every now and then, Helen, you know. <laughs> Mixing it up. <laughs> Mixing it up, listen to some film music. <laughs> yeah, I am uh, I am in there. It's not in my top two of the year, but I did have a wonderful time with it. I've seen it three times. 
I saw the show as well, uh, which I was going to ask you guys about in a minute, you know, but, um, but yeah, I just thought it was, it was a lot of fun and it was very well, I think, adapted. And again, that's a question we're going to get into, but I think it's, they've done a very good job of, of trying to figure out how to take that stage show and put it on screen. And I think a lot of credit for, for that, obviously, which we're going to, again, get into. So had you guys seen the show? What's your relationship with In the Heights before this film came out? Did you have one? I did not. And in some ways I liked that um, mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm very, very familiar with Hamilton. And what I think is cool about uh, In the Heights is that even though Lin-Manuel Miranda is not on screen for the vast majority of this film, you can still hear him through the storytelling and through yeah. the music and through the lyrics. And uh, that's a really, really cool thing. Obviously, I know In the Heights precede um, preceded uh, Hamilton by a few years, but yeah. I liked that I've seen them in this order. Fair enough. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I saw this in London a few years ago, probably maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago now. There was yeah, a, it was about 2016, 2017. By yeah, then. there was a fairly small production near King's Cross that, uh, I mean, if you've seen Hamilton on the West End, this is like a way, way smaller production. There was It was pretty minimal and it was it was a good production not mm-hmm. an amazing production but i had already been hooked in to the music at that point like i i got into hamilton through the soundtrack and listened to that for ages and ages and then discovered this one afterwards and i think i said on the regular podcast it felt like discovering a third disc of hamilton that you never knew existed because <laughs> the music in in the heights has its own flavor it has that kind of salsa influence that really isn't there in hamilton at all but the lyrical style of Lin-Manuel Miranda, his style of storytelling, the voices of his characters that are kind of all quite individual, but also all Lin-Manuel Miranda mm. is completely in this music as well. So I was a big fan of the songs. I think seeing it on stage like helped illuminate the story quite a bit more, unlike Hamilton... Uh, with the Hamilton soundtrack, this whole soundtrack like is the whole story. There is barely any bits of kind of book or dialogue outside of the music, whereas in the Heights there is. So I went and saw it on stage, kind of being familiar with the songs, but getting a lot more out of seeing the full story. And certain songs really stood out on stage. I remember seeing the Carnival del Barrio uh, kind of sequence on stage, and it was probably the highlight of the whole show, and possibly the highlight of the film here as well. So uh, they mm-hmm. did a great job of of porting that over. Yeah, I, I'm I'm similar to you, although actually I didn't listen to the soundtrack, but I did go and see that production mm. in London as a result of having gotten hooked on Hamilton. First on so I think it was I think it was like end of twenty fifteen it came out on, you know, iTunes and Spotify and all the rest. Um the the soundtrack of Hamilton and I got completely and utterly hooked on that. Didn't listen to In the Heights as incessantly, did go and see the stage show though, just to see more of, of this guy. And yeah, you can hear the rhythm of his particular musical style is instantly recognizable now. Once, you see, once mm-hmm. you've heard a couple of things, you can hear it in you know the trailer for Vivo that's coming to Netflix. You can hear it in obviously Moana, stuff like that. Like You can instantly recognize it pretty much. So, and, and you can hear all of that here, but you're right. It has these much more specific musical elements coming from mostly Central and South America here as well, which is which is pretty cool to see. Um, do, do you have favourite songs? Which are the ones you go back to over and over again? Uh, In the Heights, the title track and 96,000 are the two tracks with the extremely high play count um, <laughs> for me. 96,000 in particular is just awesome. Uh, and I love uh, how it builds and builds and builds, both sort of just on a 
you know, on the song level and also in the film with all the visuals as well. Uh, I think that is probably the high point for me. Uh, my favourite song, which isn't my favourite sequence or my favourite song in the film, but in terms wow. of the original cast <laughs> soundtrack, uh, When You're Home, mm. Benny and Nina, that version on the soundtrack that's Chris Jackson and Mandy Gonzalez is just amazing. And I think it's a real like slow burn of a banger. It like doesn't necessarily stand out the first time you hear it. But I've listened to this so much, and when I was writing the feature for this one for the magazine, obviously I was listening to the soundtrack the whole time I was doing that. And when you're home, I just think is absolutely gorgeous and hits mm. this like massive high note and has such a lovely sentiment. That jewel kind of it, it taps into a lot of what this musical is about of that sense of the personal stories of of Benny saying to Nina, "Everything is easier when you're home," mm. and also that sense of identity and place when he's saying to her, "Everything is easier when you're home." Mm. Like, oh, I love the dual meaning of that. It's so great. The theme of belonging is a big one in this in this film, and uh, it means sort of different things to a, a variety of characters. But uh, I I like it. The one that actually ended up in my head most is Alabanza, Alabanza, mm. because just the just not even the whole song, just like the f- sort of phrase, the refrain. <laughs> Just that was in there for about a week after I saw this, just like nonstop, just like randomly at day, different points of the day, coming out with Alabanza. Mm. I mean, I, I, I can't even control it right now. So it's um, it's pretty distracting. But I think you know that the the film cast did quite well. They they you know they did look for musical talent, obviously, as well as as for the most part, maybe Jimmy Smiths. They maybe went for Jimmy Smits, I'll be honest. <laughs> if you can cast Jimmy Smits, you cast Jimmy Smits. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yes, he, he was perhaps not quite as musically experienced as some of the mm. other people in the cast, I think it's fair to say. Yes, Kevin Rosario's song was snipped for the film. He did not get his own uh, very sad and kind of quite tender four-minute ballad that comes very early on in the musical, but um, that was not part of the film. Is that Inutil? It's useless? Inutil, useless. useless, It's him sort of telling his story of of how he ended up in America and his feelings of of sort of uselessness uh, around kind of being able to provide for his family and the, the... uh, struggles that the business is going through, all of this stuff, which still feeds into the character. In fact, when we interviewed uh, Jimmy Smits for the regular podcast, Chris and I spoke to him and uh, we brought up that song and he said he listened to that song a lot in his preparation for the character and while he was on set to get in that headspace, even though they didn't actually use it in the film. Although mm. it is there in bits of backing music, sometimes yeah. in, in certain sequences, the songs that they didn't use, they kind of turned that into part of the score, which is always a nice touch. Mm-hmm. And like let's talk about what they left out then, because they did also leave out his entire wife. Yes. And uh, that, that really caught me off guard when I was watching this the first time. Again, I've lived with this soundtrack version in my head for so long. <laughs> and there's a point in the opening number uh, where Kevin and his wife both walk into the bodega and, and they're kind of singing at each other. And that was changed. And my brain just went, this is wrong. Why is <laughs> there is there is no other character here? Is that like on the X Factor when they skip a verse and go straight to the bridge and you're like, no, no, like, no, no, that's <laughs> not it. There should be something else here. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it slightly changes the emphasis. I mean, uh, I think it's all just part of the streamlining, really, of that tension between Kevin and his wife and how that plays into Nina's story. It kind of all is extra plot that's kind of extraneous when you're trying to cut this down from a three-hour stage show to an admittedly still quite long two-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah. Mm. 
it's a shame that it, you get rid of a female character like like that feels like but at the same time there are a lot of really great female characters in this so i don't yeah. think it's like you're getting rid of the like only female characters this is this is my thing i mean on, on one hand i was a bit like whoa fridging whoa not sure about that <laughs> or not quite fridging but you know what mm, i mean it's mm-hmm. it's killing off a wife and a mother character because you decide she's extraneous to the plot. When she does have her own song and she is the one who forces them to talk in the end, she forces Nina and her father to actually communicate with each other because they've both been lying to each other for so long. And and it's a great song. It's a great moment in the musical. And it's a great kind of showcase for her. You don't feel the loss of one female character in this uh, that you would in some other stories because, like, if anything, there, I think there are probably more women or more significant female characters in this than there are men. This is true. Like, you know, as someone who hasn't seen the stage play, you're giving me many reasons to check it out, both of you. Yeah, yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> More songs. <laughs> Obviously, the film hasn't been a, a, the hugest hit. Um, maybe the opposite, uh, which I find quite upsetting, but hopefully it is enough for them to kind of mount a larger stage production of this going forward because I don't think it has been on stage over here that mm. much. I think the, the production in London a couple of years ago was like, oh, they're, they're finally doing that over here. So hopefully between this film and, and the massive success of Hamilton, we might get In the Heights back on stage at some point in this country. I would love that. I would definitely go back and see it again. Yeah, that would be that would be good. I think you're right. I think we've had, we just had that fairly short run of In the Heights, which was almost timed wrong. I think it, it sort of premiered before the Hamilton hype really crested, certainly in this country. Mm-hmm. And so people didn't know maybe to check it out. Uh, we've also had a very short run of Bring It On, which obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda also did music uh, music for. And of course, then Hamilton itself is still ongoing and, and hopefully will be for a long time to come. But yeah, it's maybe that maybe they just didn't quite time it right. I mean, in terms of the, the film's US box office, obviously it was being talked up a lot in the media as a big, big summer film. Mm-hmm. But it you know, maybe doesn't have that name recognition. I mean, it was on Broadway in what, 2008, 2009? It's been a while. And, you know, it's not the most memorable name in the world, maybe. I don't know if that if that hurt its chances or if people were just not quite ready to go back to the cinema yet. I think it's a mixture of a lot of those factors. Um, and also maybe a mixture of sort of the box office pundits being sort of you know, wrong in their prediction for this mm. film, because you know, you think about a film like Mamma Mia, that's a musical which is extremely well known, <laughs> uh, which uh, yes. Ben Travis is an extreme fan of. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and it stars a number of people, you know, known the world over. And mm-hmm. that opened to 27.8 million. And yet the big figure that people were quoting in the build up to In the Heights was 20 million opening. And oh, that's- you know, In the Heights, you know, as much as I love and we love Lin Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, uh, does not have the recognition, the name recognition of a Mamma Mia. I mean, I think even, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda would be the first to say that he's not as big as either ABBA or Meryl Streep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but people were sort of seeing what the figures were in relation to that prediction mm. and then drawing conclusions from that. Uh, so I think that partly is to blame for sort of how we looked at the box office for In the Heights and yeah. how we discussed that. I mean, John M. Chu, the director and his team, obviously went out of their way to, as far as possible, for the, for the core cast, find unknown talent. They, they wanted to find fairly n- relative newcomers, really. And, and Anthony Ramos was not in the running at first because they thought he was too well known. 
do you think that was the right call? I do. Um, I'm sure we're going to get into the debate about how well it did it on the whole, but there's no denying that this is still, at least for me, I've never seen so many Latinx people on screen at the same time. And I love that. I know names like Anthony Ramos, names like Melissa Barrera, Leslie Grace, who I would not have if they didn't decide to go in the direction they did in terms of casting uh, lesser known people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, just judging from their performances in this film, which I think are largely very, very good. Uh, these are guys who are now going to use this worldwide platform that they've got and go on to bigger and better things. And, you know, hopefully pave the way and pave a path for others to follow in their footsteps so they can have more films and more stars who look like them on screen. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't have happened if they went to the, you know, the more popular route and cast, yeah. and cast people that we already know and love. I mean, Anthony Ramos, I remember when they announced his casting uh, to, to play as Navi in this, and I was like, it's, this is perfect. This is, this is how, uh, how I've been expecting this to be for a while, obviously, as part of the Hamilton cast, as somebody who is younger than Lin-Manuel Miranda and kind of can play that guy who is in his like late 20s and uh, is sort of grown up enough that you buy that he could like viably have this dream of moving out of the country and setting up his own bar, but also young enough that he seems like a sort of young, youthful dreamer of a guy. And I love that with this, they really properly cast people who can really sing and dance, who can also act, like to get that triple threat of talent. I think it was really great to see Corey Hawkins Mm, do this kind of stuff, because I think primarily in my head, he was always more of an actor than anything else. But like, man, that guy can sing. Mm. And he's so great in all of the sort of song sequences that he has. Leslie Grace, I think, is primarily known as a singer. Mm -hmm. um, But to see her get the chance to act was I thought she held it really, really well in that role. Like, I think it's a really exciting group of people. It's just that there are no A-listers in there. And even in the wider cast, there are some more familiar names, but on that like worldwide, everybody knows this person sense in, in, like you were saying, the Mamma Mia cast where you got like, Pierce Brosnan and Meryl Streep and all these sorts of people where like if they walked into whatever shop everyone in the shop would be like oh my god it's Meryl Streep <laughs> no shopping getting done today <laughs> oh my god Meryl Streep I will buy you whatever you want what can I get for you right now do you want a can of lint Meryl Streep drinks lilt confirmed <laughs> yes but yeah I don't think anyone in this cast has that like insane level of recognition so it was always a tall ask and it was interesting they were clearly promoting it like the box office draw was Lin-Manuel Miranda mm-hmm. and John M. Chu mm-hmm. the guy who made Crazy Rich Asians which you all loved and the guy who made Hamilton which you all loved but it wasn't quite strong enough for this to punch through I don't think yeah which is a shame because we do love them. I mean, let's talk about John M. Chu for a minute because I think one of the things that he brings to this is, well, first of all, I am a lifelong step-up apologist. I mean, well, <laughs> as long as it's been around, I've been apologizing for it. I, I think the step-up movies are great and I think he in particular has done the best ones. And so he knows dance, he knows song, he knows how to make those exciting on screen. He also brings a lot of visual flair to this. I think he he, he brought some really lovely, both subtle touches and then these kind of big show-stoppy, showy, gorgeous visual moments. I think at, at its best in the Heights' has that perfect marriage of Broadway fun and Hollywood spectacle and visuals. And you mentioned that they do it in both way, in both big and small ways. Even Nina's big number, her first big number in the opening act, that montage we get of her father being proud of her as she ages, as she gets good grades, mm. it's just a nice visual touch to aid in the storytelling of that. And that's before you get into stuff like the animation 
at the start of 96,000, which again, is just so many cool visual touches like oh, that. Yeah, the sort of animated trash talk. Yeah, the, the, the animated trash talk, the lightsaber. They, they, I, I spoke to Coy Hawkins a little bit about that, and he was like, he was telling me about <laughs> how minute they were getting into the doing that and all, all, the, all the little touches they were trying to do. Um, and he was like, let's just, let's just do it. Like, and they were like, no, we need to get this right. We need to do this, this and that. And, and yeah, it came off perfectly. So yeah, I, I think he did uh, a, a very good job with the subtle details and also, you know, this, the 96,000 again, which is, you might be able to tell it's my favorite sequence in the film. Right, um, <laughs> um, but that is a big example of how John choose sort of uh, added visual flair and mm. what, what he's doing with the camera in that scene when they go underwater to, you know, to above again, stuff like that is just, it was really, really great. I mean, I don't think John Chu's back catalogue is is flawless by any means. Mm-hmm. But if you look at all the things that he's hey, done, step up to the streets is flawless. All right, no one is disputing <laughs> step up to the streets. But it's really great to see him like between this and Crazy Rich Asians, like just step up to the peak of his powers and be in a position where everything he's done clearly leads to yeah. where he is. Yeah. So, so much of his career so far has been about capturing performance, whether that's in the Step Up movies or like he did like some of the Justin Bieber concert films, but that is all about capturing live energy and musical mm. performance and all of that. With the G.I. Joe film that he did, he's done just big studio blockbuster stuff where you're ram- wrangling huge sums of money and trying to just make a thing happen. With Crazy Rich Asians, he was able to tell this really like culturally specific story and make it a hit. And you combine all of those things and all of that comes into play within the heights. So I think he was a really great choice to do this. And it just feels like every song and every sequence and every character arc, he's kind of thinking of ways to portray things in an interesting visual way, but it's not just flair. It all relates back to character and place and feeling. Mm. And to kind of keep that threaded through this two and a half hour film that on the one hand kind of has no plot and also everybody has a story in it Mm. is a lot of stuff to juggle and for me it all kind of coheres just in a really beautiful way yeah i have to say one of the examples of that that i so the first time i watched this was on a screener at home so just on my tv which you know it's a big enough tv but what it's not a cinema screen Mm -hmm. so it wasn't until i saw it in the cinema that i noticed for example Young Nina, who we see in that scene of, you mentioned of her father being proud of her and the sort of mm-hmm. camera spinning around the, the apartment. You see, she sees herself in the streets over and over and over again. And it goes right through the film. And I'd, cr- of course, seen a couple of those when I watched it at home, but it wasn't until I watched it in the cinema that I saw quite as many as there are moments of that. So there's little mm. things like that. And Nina in dialogue with herself, trying to figure out where she belongs in the world, I thought was a really neat visual touch. No CG necessary, none of the sort of Mm-mm. glamour of, you know, bolts of fabric spilling over buildings, but just having an actress show up and appear on the street and look at another actress and then disappear again. That that told you a lot, you know? Mm. All of that stuff of, of uh, Nina seeing her inner child on the streets and how carefree her younger self was, and that she's now walking those same streets again, just like plagued with all these worries. I find that so emotional. Mm. Breathe, that song really gets to me. I also love that that's the song where uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's parents make a little cameo. They're some of the mm-hmm. people welcoming Nina back to the neighborhood, which is a really lovely touch. But yeah, that recurring motif, there's lots of lovely recurring motifs that, again, all relate back to character. And for her, it's, it is seeing her younger self and 
when I spoke to John Chu, he was saying that some of those motifs were accidental. There are all sorts of flocks of birds flying around in this film. That's because while they were shooting in Washington Heights, <laughs> they just kept having fl- flocks of birds flying into set, and they were like, "Let's make a thing of that." <laughs> it's not. It's, it wasn't Spielberg down the road scaring all the birds <laughs> off or something. I mean, it could have been. They were right <laughs> up against each other mm. uh, when they were shooting uh, West Side Story and uh, In the Heights, mm. basically in in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Ben, you, you mentioned the word a few minutes ago, uh, energy. And John Chu is very good at capturing that on screen. And, you know, and musicals rely so much on that too. Um, Because this, and this musical is fun, even when you're not catching and taking in all of the lyrics first time, at least I didn't, you know, I think that doesn't really matter because the film is so energetic and you get swept up in it. It's a sign that musical is working really well. And you feel that from the opening number all the way through. Mm. We've got a lot of questions about missing songs, so I'm not going to I'm not going to spend too much longer on the sort of the changes that were made between the the stage and the screen. But I do want to ask about your favourite um, cameos, if you will, your Hamilton cameos <laughs> in the film, because I have a very definite favourite, but I'm interested to hear yours. <laughs> Chris, I mean, it's it's got to be Chris Jackson, <laughs> yep. right? I presume that's yours as well, Helen. No, like, no, is it not? It's mine. mine. <laughs> is the Stanford Hold music? Yes. So when Kevin is on the phone to Stanford trying to sort out his daughter's tuition and he's put on hold, the music is King George's song from Hamilton. <laughs> and that is just, that's wonderful. It's, it's a perfect, perfect drop of music. <laughs> it's out of place. It doesn't sound right. And yet it absolutely gets across the, the you know, the poshness and the, the, the clash of cultures that they're dealing with. I thought that was superb. One more reason why I'm glad I saw these movies in the way I did. (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of layering in of of extra meaning in that as well, I think comes across in the fact that, yeah, Chris Jackson, who uh, Lynn has worked with many times, Mm. he was uh, George Washington in uh, Hamilton. He is Moana's dad in Moana. He was the original Benny Benny in the original cast of In the Heights. So they've worked together for a long, long time. And he is Mr. Softy, the uh, ice cream guy who is uh, the rival of Peregal Guy, who obviously here is played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it really made me chuckle that not only did Chris Jackson get a cameo in this, but he is Lin-Manuel Miranda's rival and they get to kind of play off each other in that really fun way and obviously get a post credit scene together yeah. uh, where that rivalry continues. We get the Paragua reprise with Paragua Guy getting his uh, one-up on Mr. Softy when the ice cream van breaks down. Really made me laugh mm. when I first saw it. I think they ended up putting him in one of the trailers, but I'd already seen the film by that point. So when I was watching it, I did not expect him to be in it and it really made me chuckle. So what you're saying is, it turns out Lynn had a secret weapon, an actor who we knew and loved, who was unafraid to step in. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. I also love the how, um, you know, everyone assumes that Uznavi is, is essentially the Lin-Manuel Miranda character. Obviously, he played him on stage, but the, he says the one who's closest to him in personality is actually Nina, which absolutely tracks. Once you know that, you're like, well, of course, yes, the overachiever who <laughs> who gets out and goes to this whole new world and has to try and figure out their own way through. And lovely, and one of the changes here is because of the specifics of Sonny's story and the fact that they make Sonny uh, an undocumented immigrant and that part of then Nina's sort of ultimate resolution is her going, okay, no, I want to be a lawyer because then I can help people with their immigration cases. It's, it's taking that character that Lynn most identified with as he was writing it and with him going okay well how do i give back to my community and it's in presenting stories about my community and you take that character and 
give them a reason or a way to give back to their community as well in terms of yeah helping uh, undocumented people as uh, an overall kind of aim i thought that was a really nice touch yeah i thought that that felt right and powerful i think because i think that's become maybe an issue that's more in the news now even than it was in 2008 so mm-hmm. it it felt like a like a good thing to discuss and brings us to another cameo mark mark anthony who's you know huge huge star in the us and and in again spanish speaking countries all over the world and just turns up to play a deadbeat dad for about half a scene amazing yeah, it does, doesn't even get a song, although he sings the sort of new kind of pop song that's over the end credits. But yeah, again, um, he's he's just a small role in it, but I think it just speaks to them trying to, on the one hand, make this film for a global audience, but also make it for a particular community who is going to understand kind of what these cameos mean and, and who these people are. Mm. Well, let's talk about community, because that's been one of the things that's been most discussed in the wake of this film's release. There has been considerable controversy about the casting and whether the producers and the director did as much as they could to represent Washington Heights, essentially, and the population of Washington Heights as it is today, and specifically did they have enough um, black people or Afro-Latinos to actually reflect the neighborhood? Yeah. um, It's unfortunate that this is a film where this has been sort of thrust into the spotlight because, you know, as we were saying earlier, there there are not many films like this that we have in terms of, you know, big Hollywood productions or or big Hollywood level productions uh, which you see this many sort of Latinx people on mm. screen. So it's a shame um, that they unfortunately didn't do the greatest job when it came to uh, representation, unfortunately. And uh, I, I just hope that now that it has been thrust into the spotlight, we can, you know, hopefully that is for the better and we take on the lessons that this discussion is teaching us, um, which is just to be more mindful of how we're making decisions in regards to casting, because I I get the anger that people have expressed here. If this film, as it was, was being marketed as, you know, this is made by Latinx people for Latinx people, and you are part of those supposed people and you don't see yourself on screen, I get the frustration and anger that people will feel. And, you know, there's a, a lot of sort of, you know, pointing the finger that you can do here. The decision makers, you know, at the top need to be sort of, you know, aware of this, but I think even sort of actors need to sort of, you know, pay attention to this as well. Um, I remember a story a few years ago uh, where Amanda Stenberg was an actor who I really, really admire. Yeah, uh, she started in The Hate You Give. And she was going for Black Panther auditions, but decided to step away from the role because of colorism. So, you know, she was, you know, even at her young age, I think she was 19 at the time, uh, sort of, you know, understood that. So what she, th- she felt she was at an advantage because of her lighter skin. She felt that she was too light skinned to play the character, mm-hmm. um, you know, given sort of, you know, what the film was trying to represent yeah, and what yeah. the film was trying to say. So she stepped away, even like she, she did one audition, uh, but after so that she sort of stepped away from the process. So yeah, it just, you know, the Mars people sort of are aware of that, accept that, and then sort of work hard to uh, figure out what the right thing to do in that situation is. Again, it's just unfortunate because, you know, there's a level of this is like our one shot, our one film, everything has to get right, it has to be done right. These are the crosses that these films bear because they are the first, they are the pioneers. But hopefully the more 
sort of, you know, Latinx films we get and the more uh, those films get it right, this will become less of an issue in the future. Yeah. I think the, the conversation around this film and that has arisen from it is specifically as well about colorism within the Afro-Latino community, because there are Afro-Latino people in this film. Leslie Grace yeah, yeah. is Afro, Afro-Latino. Uh, Dasha Polanco, who you might know from Orange is the New Black, is Afro-Latina. Uh, Noah Catala, who plays Graffiti Pete, who is a, a small but recurring mm-hmm. character in it, is, is Afro-Latino as well. But it's specifically in terms of darker-skinned Afro-Latino people yeah. who, from what people say, make up a, a very vast majority of the people within Washington Heights. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's all about the specificity here in terms of representing this specific neighborhood and it goes beyond just the initial representation of have you got black people in your film have you got latinx people in your film and have you got afro-latino people in your film but specifically within that discrimination around colorism i think is where this whole uh conversation has arisen yeah absolutely and then the secondary level to that is you know we were talking about stuff uh which has not made the transition from stage play to film and one of those things is um, the storyline with uh, Kevin Rosario, Nina's father, and his feelings towards Benny. Yeah. And obviously, I haven't watched the stage play. Maybe you guys can speak to that uh, more. But that is sort of, you know, a subplot, which is very much about sort of, you know, blackness and racism and all the rest of it. And choosing not to adapt that is a shame because that's another sort of way they could have made a statement mm. on that issue. Yeah, I think that was probably... Uh- Maybe, maybe let's say streamlining again, mm. maybe an attempt to take away one obstacle to, to that romance and one, one issue for that romance. Um, and, and perhaps honestly, an attempt to make Kevin more sympathetic, you know, maybe they didn't want to give him that complexity, which, you know, maybe that was part of trying to attract a star to the role. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Jimmy Smith has taken, God knows, complicated characters in his in his time on screen but maybe for something like this he doesn't want to play a racist and you know to some extent who could blame him that um that, that would that would make a certain amount of sense but yeah you do lose something when you lose that you lose that conversation and i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing because on one hand it means that you don't go into a lovely peppy summer musical and have to sit watching racism be done at you, you know. So mm. that's a an advantage at least uh, for a viewer, mm. but it's perhaps a loss for the conversation itself. Yeah. And I say this, you know, it's I'm also sort of optimizing in, in the way that you know I I think as much as I like in the highest, I do think it's a little bit too long. It could have maybe stood to have lost even even more. Yeah. Um. And yet I'm sort of you know advocating <laughs> for this. So You're still jonesing I, for extra <laughs> for extra subplots. Yeah. Yeah. Release the Rosario cut. <laughs> Hashtag. I mean, release the Rosario racist cut, though. I'm not sure that's no, something. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned like he's got a song, he's got a, a wife, and he's, 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 he's just, they're just, you know, chopping all the Rosario parts down. <laughs> I want to see it. Bring in the, uh, the stage Kevin Rosario variant. Yes, this is now a Loki spoiler special. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. I won't rest Inevitable. until they're all played by alligators. Singing alligators. <laughs> see it now. That would open to 27 million. <laughs> if you had uh, Lynn's Uznavi and Anthony Ramos's Uznavi <gasps> joining up and, and teaming up together, that is a musical I want to see. Yeah. In, in, into the Heights verse. Corey and Christopher are together at last. <laughs> yes, this is an amazing idea. Wow. Would watch. Would watch. Would watch. <laughs> um, but yes, no, this, it, is, it is, I think, unfortunate that a, a film that means well in so many 
ways has become such a touch paper for controversy. At the same time, because it is so well-meaning, because its ideas are so so high, that has made the disappointment all the more keen for people. And I think that's why it's happened. But what, what I will say is, is uh, and not to diminish in any way that, that discussion, which I think is a really valuable one to have, mm. what I do like about this film is that it very much goes out of its way to point out that Latinx is, yes, a convenient term for you know, Spanish-speaking Americans or Americans of Spanish or, uh, Hispanic origin, but they are not a homogenous mass. They are not all from one place. They do not all share one culture. They do not all eat the same food. They do not all act the same way, have the same accent. And I think that is great. And you see that in the food. You see that in the uh, the details of the of people's apartments. Uh, you see that particularly, obviously, in Carnival del Barrio, where they literally take out their flags and wave them at you. Mm. But it, you know, it gives it a real texture and it gives it a real depth to the Latinx representation, which I think does is valuable and, and is worth celebrating, even if, as as discussed, it definitely doesn't go far enough in terms of, you know, people of Caribbean origin and and black origin who are also part of that community. In, in terms of the Carnival del Barrio sequence, I love that when they're displaying their flag, but also the dances that they're doing uh, are all very distinct from each other and come from those uh, specific communities. Yeah. So lovely touches. Also, there's that moment where you get the the return of that, uh, of the kind of mention of all of the different countries and the different flags. And when they invoke the Puerto Rican flag, it just cuts to Lynn for a couple of seconds <laughs> on the balcony when they, um, they I believe the English translation of the lyric is uh, raise the Puerto Rican flag and it cuts to him singing it and waving a flag. And it's like, that's a lovely moment for Lynn manuel Miranda. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I, I wonder actually, I, I, and I, I didn't ask John M. G. and I don't know if you did, then if if they if they really did tailor the actors to each of those flags or if it was set in char- character i'm not sure but i would bet that they at least asked the actors and tried to sort them by country as far as possible you know so it's pretty cool okay so let's take some questions from readers i think it's probably time okay so at kenny greenboy uh, has a couple of questions um let's start with uh, did you think this was better for the exclusion of several songs and he specifically mentions Kevin Rosario's again. I I think so. Kevin's song is really great, but like again, if you're being ruthless, that if you're going to preserve a song about here is my specific story of coming to this country and what that all means, you keep Paciencia y Fe. Like you keep Abuela Claudia's song. That is like the heart of this musical so much. Mm -hmm. So if you're kind of having to really look at everything and think of what you strip away. Also, I'd say the majority of the songs that make it in are all from Act 1 and they kind of condense the amount of songs in Act 2. And Act 2, the songs don't stand out as much for me. Like that, there are a couple of ones where, as with Hamilton, it's sort of repeated refrains or continuations of songs you've already heard. And again, if you're going to get rid of stuff, like that is the stuff I would get rid of. I would love it if there was a full-on three-hour cut with every single song in here but you're never going to get that with the musical adaptation and i think they chose all of the important ones to keep and sort of juggled things around in a way that really made sense that gave each character their time to shine um because effectively you have the opening number in the heights and then pretty much every all the four main characters get their own song each that's like here's who I am, here's what my situation is, here's what I want. And now the next person gets their chance to do that. And once you've got through all of that, then you can play them all off each other. And already that is a lot of work to do. So I didn't mind that they stripped back quite a few songs from the second act. Fair enough. Imagine if you had to sort of sing all of that 
<laughs> here's who I am. Here's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> the world would be a better place. I'm what just saying. What would your I want song be called? <laughs> I, uh, well, Amon's would be, I want the Kevin Rosario cut. <laughs> <laughs> Amon's would be called Woodwatch, and then it'd be a really long <laughs> list. And I would watch oh that my gosh. every day. <laughs> I'm going to start writing the lyrics to this right this after. This is a hit. This is, I can feel it. This is going to be a massive hit. Each verse is about a different thing that Amon would watch, and the chorus <laughs> always comes back to, and I would watch that. <gasps> oh. I mean, this thing Man. writes itself. Oh my God. By a podcast, the musical, <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> wow, you heard it here first and let's be honest, last. So, <laughs> I mean, anyone who's listening to our spoiler specials already knows our lack of musical talent, uh, but our plethora of kazoos. So be careful what you wish for, people. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, Ke- Kenny did not rest with only one question. Of course, he had more. Um, so he also asks, did the lottery ticket change from the stage version hinge on the social commentary changes in the story? And was the addition of that story in depth necessary because the original stage story wasn't strong enough? So just to be clear, the lottery ticket in the stage version, we find out way earlier that Abuela Claudia won the lottery. That's not a last minute revelation. So she actually, Mm -hmm. I think, tells them before she dies she tells them before she dies, but also the audience finds out way, way earlier, earlier because Pacencia yeah. Ifei yeah. is not her sort of, for lack of a better phrase, death song. It comes way earlier in Act One yeah. and it ends with her singing, what will I do with this winning ticket? And there is a pause for the audience to gasp. <gasps> and, then, <laughs> and obviously they push that song way back in the musical, but when, <laughs> in the film, sorry. But when they get to that line, she goes, I made it through, I survived, I did it. And I was like, wait, she didn't say that she won the winning ticket. What is going on? I'm confused again. I, I think they maybe juggled this around purely just for tension. Like like I said before, this is a, a film that sort of doesn't have a story and yet has a few stories happening within it all at once. And one of the central threads or the easiest to pinpoint threads is... All of the residents are struggling financially, but somebody has won this lottery ticket. Who is it? Who's going to get the money? And what is that going to mean for them? So I think they they push Abuela Claudia's song back so that they can have that kind of coincide with her death. And I think they do a lovely job of tying those moments in together, but then also leave that tension in the air kind of until the last act of like, oh, it was Abuela Claudia who won it and she's given the money to Uznavi and now he his options are open. He can still go back to the Dominican Republic, but maybe he can stay in, in the uh, in the heights and continue the shop. So I think it's just purely for dramatic reasons. I think I actually think this works better than revealing it earlier on. Earlier on, yeah. um, it's kind of weird to set up a mystery, but then tell the audience straight away the result of that mystery, and then have different characters at different points find out the result of that. I really like that change. I didn't know about it until two minutes ago, um, but I I really really like it. I <laughs> I'm a guy, I guess, when I watch films, if if the information is not sort of you know very sort of you know front and center, I have a habit of sort of forgetting until the opportune moment. So if they were to have said, "Here's you won the lottery ticket," early on, I would be sort of having that in more the forefront in my mind. Um, in terms of sort of Chekhov's sort of uh, Chekhov's uh, lottery, lottery ticket, ticket yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, having that ninety six thousand sequence, ninety six thousand song, but not actually revealing sort of who had it until uh, Uznavi finds out sort of you know uh, what he does, uh, I think was a really really smart choice and just really really sweet. Yeah, and sweeter in 
in for, for for not revealing it sort of sooner um and, and revealing it when they do yeah and can i just say anthony ramos's reaction when he discovers that ticket at the mm. end i love his performance in this so much i think he's so endearing and feels so real and the the impact of what that means in the wake of Abuela Claudia's death, I think it hits so hard, and he plays that moment so sweetly. Um, yeah, if you if you're rewatching this, just wait, like his little reaction, oh, yeah. it's a killer. Oh, yeah. it's super sweet. It's really mm. good. I, I have to say, I, I actually think it's a good change as well because, apart from anything else, right? Any time anybody has a winning ticket of any sort in a movie, <laughs> so it's a ticket, but it's not the thing itself, not yet stresses me out beyond belief. I'm just like waiting for like the wind to blow it away or somebody to pick their pocket or just, you know, there to be a fire and the thing burns it. Like I'm, it stresses me out so, so much. And I was stressed out watching the show about what was going to happen to that damn ticket. I was really genuinely worried. So it, it was, it was, I thought this was a really good solution to that, which is not to stress everyone out, just let everybody have a nice time at their big summer musical. Just breathe. <laughs> the FA, I know, I know, you're right. Okay, some more questions. At Liz Trey, more of a comment than a question, if I'm honest, um, says, it did feel like a lot of the things about the stage show got lost. It's very funny and the pacing made the laughs vanish. I, I don't know, Do you did you think it was funny? I mean, Amon, you haven't seen the stage show. Were there laughs? Laughs are not something that immediately come to mind, but I did <laughs> like, find the tone sort of lightly humorous throughout that I, I really like the um, sequence where Nino goes into the uh, salon. Mm. That sequence was funny. No me digas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, some really nice visual touches with that too, with the mannequins sort of no nodding and laughing mm. along to everything going on. Valentina from RuPaul's Drag Race makes a cameo in that sequence, and that made me very happy. Yes, for <laughs> Valentina. Oh, I didn't spot that. Epic fail. I should really be watching this Drag Race thing, shouldn't I? Oh, you should. It's the best. <laughs> it's I've only watched Drag Race UK, I must confess, um, but it is pretty great. Yeah. Okay. Trying to ask Vanessa out was pretty funny. Like that was an epic. Yes, fail. I do. I do like um, sort of the the awkwardness that Uznavi has towards Vanessa in the early going. That was fun and funny. Like I'm trying to think of any time that I've had, I've had a really sort of big laugh in this film, and like that doesn't sort of spring to mind in terms of examples but again scenes like that are scenes where i chuckled you know, and you know had, had a good time watching it and it's fun without necessarily being laugh out loud funny yeah is there any sort of fair. thing in the stage play that is laugh out loud funny that i'm missing out on i think most of it translates across I, for me I to be honest so too, it is yeah. carnival del barrio i think is just fun of full of really fun and witty lines uh like that the whole opening like since when are latin's people scared of heat and and that amazing moment that Stephanie Beatriz's character gets, where she's kind of trying to that it doesn't matter what you sing, just as long as you sing, uh, I'm yeah. Puerto Dominica Rican. I always say her from Queens. <laughs> like I think I think so much of that humor. It's not a comedy, mm. but I think there is yeah. humor and lightness all the way through it that comes through in the character interactions and in bits of the music yeah. as well. So I didn't mm. personally feel like much of that was lost. Hey, may, maybe that's from somebody who knows the intricacies of the book more than I do, mm. uh, because I've only seen the stage show once, and it was years ago. So I'm much more familiar, really, with the music than the intricacies of the kind of scenes uh, in terms of the stage show. But I I think this is yeah. I'm not saying 
to people go and see it because it's super funny but <laughs> i think it's it just all adds to that like lovely warm feeling of the yeah. whole thing yeah i yeah. think and, and we should give some credit where I, th- I think we we always focus on limo miranda for obvious reasons but obviously the book was written and the screenplay was adapted by Kira Alegria Hudes. I think it's Hudes. I'm, I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Who, who has done a phenomenal job, I think, and is, is a fantastic playwright, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not on her own, in her own right, as well as in this, in partnership. So uh, I think she's done a really good job there. I would just add that it's really cool. As someone who's a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan, it's yeah. really cool to see Stephanie Beatrice in uh, a role like this. I wish she had more to do, but what she has to do, she does very well. Absolutely. Very I just want I just want nothing but good things for her. She just seems <laughs> awesome as yeah. a person. And we're gonna get them because she is the lead in Encanto, the new Disney film with yes! new songs by Lin Mama Miranda. There's a theme. Um next question. Uh this is t- for me, but I think it will will maybe apply to you as well. At Roscoe Kenan <laughs> Keniston asks, um, I have to know how hard did you squeal when you heard the hold music? <laughs> Very hard. Full on squeal. Out loud. Ooh. One of those. <laughs> I must confess, I didn't uh, did not catch it the first couple of times. <gasps> My goodness. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I, I feel ashamed. Uh I'm gonna go in my corner and cry now. No. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a really, really cool uh touch. Yeah. That that song has no right to work as well as it does mm. in Hamilton, and I love that it's taken on a new life in in, in this film. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, next question, Mark Clayton at I am M Clates says, um, I love the Heights and have been playing the soundtrack on loop for the last few weeks. However, we can't- Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> However, we can't work out why Benny was so happy when he'd lost his job. We presume the dispatch was sold? No, he's 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 devastated that he's lost his job. When he's in the club drinking with Usnavi, he's drowning his sorrows for the fact that like, hey, I'm out of a job. I had no like part to play in any of this. And well, what am I supposed to do with my life now? Mm. Um, so I, I think there is no celebration there for him. It's it's very much commiserations. It leaves him in quite a precarious place because the business has been sold. Nina is going back to college. It's interesting you hear Lynn and Kiara talking about when the sun goes down, the final Benny and Nina song, and how I think one of them sees it. I think Lynn sees it. It has a more romantic idea of like, oh, we're going to stay together when you go back to college and we're going to do this long distance and it's going to be tricky, but it's going to work. And Kiara kind of sees it as there is definitely something here and we should hold on to that, but also this is going to be long distance and it's probably not going to work out. Um, so it leaves Benny in quite a precarious place of his his relationship status in question, his his job question in status. But I, I think you really buy the smarts of that character yeah. that he has these business ambitions and he is going to get himself somewhere and he's kind of always on the move and always using his initiative like in the wake of the blackout when he's like okay my job is basically going but i need to get to the taxi dispatch now because people are going to need cars and i'm going to do what i can yeah. so you see in all these different ways that he's like really switched on and you hear in 96000 how yeah his ambitions are to go and be a businessman and to kind of start a business of his own. Um, so I like to think that maybe he goes on to do that down the line. Benny will be singing on a dispatch again <laughs> very soon. Benny will be owning a dispatch, at least. Come on. Oh, his, his flirting in, in Benny's dispatch, him, him mm. flirting with Nina, like wiggling his shoulders while he's trying to get her to sing along into the mic. Oh, it's so charming. I love Say it so much. Hello. 
<laughs> and I think there's a de- there's a deliberate thing in his character as well that he is like her father, like a, not to be all Freudian about it, but like he's clearly going to be the self made businessman who, you know, who makes it work, who finds a way, who because forges his own path and creates his own opportunities and makes a business for himself. I, I feel like that's the the irony in in the show of this of the racism, frankly, that that Kevin has, which is he is overlooking a guy who is exactly like he is and who would have been treated the same, you know, who would also have been treated the same by racists, you know, back in the day. So it's it's just a it's a tragedy and it's a short-sighted stupidity on his part that that speaks very, very ill of him. But it is it's all the more ironic, basically, because he they're just the same. They're exactly the same guy, you know, in a lot of ways. But yeah, Benny will be fine. I have no worries about Benny whatsoever <laughs> in a weird way. Okay, another question at Pity the Backseat um, says, loved, loved Jimmy Smithson in the Heights. Disappointed they cut the parts of the plot where he disliked Benny, which would have added more gravitas to the role. I think we've just dis- discussed that. Mm-hmm. Also saddened they didn't add the Abuelita mural to the store shutters. It lost a bit of emotional impact without that. Do you agree? Yeah, so again, just to, to explain, uh, in the film, obviously, the um, mural that Graffiti Pete has done is inside the shop and it is of Uznavi's dad's beach. In the show, uh, basically, the store ends up being trashed and they have to pull the shutters down. But Graffiti Pete does a mural of Abuela Claudia, and that is the thing that Uznavi sees at the end and decides, oh no, I need to stay here and continue Abuela's legacy. I think it did slightly miss something because. Uh, they need the mural of the beach to kind of make the framing narrative work of them being on the beach, which was very confusing to me when they put the trailer out. Like, I was wondering if that was going to be a commentary on the gentrification and the fact that, like, this musical was written 15 years ago and that now a lot of people have been priced out of that neighborhood and maybe Uznavi has been priced out because the show ends with him saying, New York, I found my island. I, I've been on it the whole time. I'm home. But maybe in the film, that's not the case and he's had to move. Obviously, it didn't go that way. And I, I like that kind of playfulness of the framing narrative where it's kind mm-hmm. of him on the beach, but it is still him in the bodega. So I think that's obviously why they switched it up. But I think there is more emotional power in it being about Abuela Claudia. Mm-hmm. So I did miss that. Obviously, she has her little corner in there, the, the bit that says Pacentier Fay. So they still get her in there. But it feels like that is not the kind of emotional resolution that the film is going for. It's it's trying to get the message across about the beach and finding the island and him already being there. I, I, I did miss that, I have to say. We haven't talked very much about Abuelita Claudia, but she is a really important part of the of the story. She is a really important mm. character. Um did you think she got her due apart from that apart from that moment? Yeah, Olga Merides, who plays the the role on stage as well, is absolutely incredible. Her voice is amazing. I love the way they did Paciencia Fay, that kind of very stylized journey through the different subway carriages, a journey through history, her story of coming to America. Like the lyrics of that song are so emotional. I think it's I like I said before, I think that is the heart of this show. Like, uh, and I think the brilliance of this show and of this film is that it is a multi generational story. Like, you have uh, Uznavi's generation, you have Kevin Rosario's generation, and you have Abuela Claudia's generation. And there is a through line, there are threads of shared experience, but also the history and the heritage that she brings and the experience that she can give voice to of growing up in Cuba, of 
her mixed memories of there's a line in that song where she says all of america welcoming mommy and me and then it very quickly turns to this very harsh you better clean this mess you'd better learn english yeah. you'd better not be late and this sort of disconnect between her memories of the the warmth of childhood and the excitement of coming to america but also the really harsh treatment that that she lived through for for decades and decades the way that they visualize that the way that they kind of do a really great job of visualizing it in terms of, uh, yeah, the, the different eras of the sage cars and the people around Abuela Claudia, but also leaving it on her. She is front and center. That whole song is such an amazing balancing act. And I think it works incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I'm, I'm a little confused about when, when you talk about generations, it got me thinking. I, I was a little bit confused about people's relative ages. So Nina's in her first year of college, which you think would make her t- 19. As Navi is in the second half of his 20s, Vanessa seems to be trying to open her own business, presumably having studied a bit of design, maybe. So she might be early 20s, Late 20s. too. But, you know, it, it does seem like there's may, there could be as much as 10 years nearly between Benny and, and uh, Nina, right? I, yeah. I think they might all be around like mid 20, like mid 20s to late 20s, because. Um, obviously, paying for college in America is is insane. Uh, there could feasibly have been a long time sure. where Nina is working on the dispatch and kind of earning money to save up to be able mm. to go off to college. But yeah, I think it is slightly fudged, and I wonder if that is partly to do with the fact that it's fifteen years since the the stage show and and things have changed, and the way you kind of slightly fudge the ages of the characters with that and the different generations that they're trying to portray. Um, I, I wonder yeah. if that's part of it. And actually, you know, Olga Meredith is only just old enough really to play Abuelita Claudia. <laughs> she wasn't when she did it on stage. Didn't work, I mean, didn't stop her. She was amazing, but yeah, she's only 65 now. Yeah, you see her out of the Abuela Claudia wig and you're like, oh my God, you're really young. That wig is doing a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the amount of warmth there is to that mm. character and how much warmth you can feel radiating back from her all the way through the film. It's it's really a nice, sweet touch. And she's funny and playful and lively. That conversation she has with Uznavi on the steps when he's like, I, my dad's bar is up for sale. I can do it. Uh, and she agrees to go with him. And I think she says, like, get me a bikini. We're going. <laughs> it's just great. Like She's just so full of life as a character, which then I think makes it hit even harder, obviously, when she passes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I think she's uh, yeah, she's she's beautifully done, and and also just like little touches as well. You know, obviously cooking up a storm because the prodigal daughter has returned. That nothing says mm-hmm. granny or abuelita like that does. <laughs> um, but also, you know, details like taking in the the napkins to be dry cleaned, and then hearing the price and sort of going, okay, that's lovely. Thank you so much. I'll I'll call you back. Don't call me. I'll call you. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, it, it all just felt absolutely right for the character. Yeah. the And the, the story behind those napkins is really lovely as well. Mm. That's something that um, Kiara told me about for the feature, uh, where it was a very specific part, I think, of Puerto Rican history, where families who were hit really hard economically then took to hand embroidering uh, napkins and, and other things and that was a very specific piece of history that she wanted to bring into the film. And I like that that gets its own yeah. little moment about the um, the importance of that and tying it into that idea of asserting dignities in small ways. And mm. I think this whole film, especially in the wake of the Trump era, is like two and a half hours of asserting dignity. Yeah. I, I do think part of maybe the change in Kevin Rosario's character and, and losing that 
subplot of the racism towards Benny is a an intentional softening of portraying a very positive view of this community and of Latinx people. And obviously that in some ways is erasing the point of that story, which has its own problems to it. It's, it is a choice that they have made. But I do think a lot of this film is making intentional choices of just like, let us celebrate this community that uh, historically has not been celebrated and very specifically over the last however many years has been overtly demonized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it certainly does play a celebratory role, like uh, and not least in its portrayal of parties, nights out, community sing-alongs, um, yeah, <laughs> candlelit vigils, fireworks. I mean, it feels like a, a bit of a party just on your cinema screen. All right. Well, I think we should we should wrap this up. Um, maybe we should wrap it up by talking about the the end of the movie. I mean, the the sort of the finale itself. What did you think of of how it how it came around in the end? Oh, I love it so much. Like the 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 song finale, the the last song on the soundtrack, um, discounting the Mark Anthony song. How do you think they came up um, with that, that name? Yeah, it's weird. It's like got this really great thematic resonance. I don't know. Um, that is a song that, in terms of the stage soundtrack never really stood out to me when i was watching the film for the first time i was like oh this is great and it's it's grown on me so much the lyrics of it and the feeling of it because the the whole of this film has that kind of do the right thing sweltering heat wave all the pressure everyone having to like work out their own situations am i moving am i saying am i going abuela's died what's happening well it is a fun and upbeat movie and and show the, all the characters are going through a lot of things and Uznavi is caught between all kinds of feelings. And there is such a palpable relief to to that notion of I've found my island and to the lyrics in that song where it's the hydrants are open, cool breezes blow. Mm. And, and that refrain, it's, it's not a punchy refrain, but there is a peace to it. And you feel that level of peace of, of this character who felt kind of lost and suddenly feels found and knows what he wants to do and where he wants to be. And I think, yeah, a lot of that comes into the song, but the way that they visualize it, I know is it's fairly simple, but all the kids running out into mm-hmm. the fire hydrants that are open, them standing in the middle, that final I'm home to camera, their daughter, like yeah. sort of smiling. And I think maybe winking is the last thing. And it's like, ah, oh, it, it makes my heart want to explode. And that is a big reason why I'm going to go back and see it again, because I want to feel that again um, in the cinema before it finishes showing. Yeah, that's um, Olivia Perez as Iris, and she is just adorable. It's a, it's so a super cute. cute way to finish the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical style and the way he switches uh, things up, switches style, switches styles sometimes in the same song, and th- th- that perfectly mirrors the lyrics and what's what the character's going through and what's happening on screen. Um, and it's evident in the finale song. It's evident in a song like Ninety Six Thousand, which has a rap and which has sort of an interlude with Vanessa before going back to the main yeah. song. I I love it whenever uh, uh, he does that and. It's really, really fun. Yeah, I mean, we probably haven't talked enough about the musicality, but it is it is there very much. It's the layering, it's the blending of different themes and different you know motifs in each song. It's it's really really well written. I mean, this is not news to anyone, but it, it's pretty <laughs> good. I think he might have a future, you know. <laughs> this just in, Lin Manuel Miranda writes good songs, <laughs> musicals, great. <laughs> 
Well, on that bombshell, I don't know that we can say anything more, so let's wrap it up. But I want to thank Squadcast Names, Warman's Dispatch. I'm on Warman. <laughs> this is Warman on the Dispatch. <laughs> Bye. Peace. I want to thank Mr. Braggadocio, Ben Travis. <laughs> Oh no, there goes Mr. Braggadocio. <laughs> I've got more flows than Obi-Wan Kenobi, yo. Woo! Bye. I've always said that about you, my goodness. And it's goodbye from me. Oharabansa, which is as close as I could get to a pun. And it wasn't very close, let's be honest. But anyway, bye. See you in our next spoiler special. Please do look out as ever. We're going to have a steady stream of them coming over the next few weeks, including... Fast 9. Uh, if you haven't listened to all our Loki spoiler specials, those are all up and live right now. Uh, Black Widow will be coming your way pretty soon and we have many, many more behind it. So do keep them peeled and thanks again for subscribing and listening to our inane babble for another hour or so. Cheers all. Cheers all.